thanks, Sarah. Let's, um, let, let me pray as we continue to study God's Word. Father, um, thank you for your Word open before us. I really pray that you'd be with us by your Holy Spirit to bring that Word to life in our hearts and do the work that you want it to do in us. Please bless me as I speak, um, to speak wisely and well of you. Um, please cover me, Lord, with your gospel of grace as I bring this word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is Noah week three. We've spent uh, the last two Sundays thinking about the story of Noah. And today we get to finish the story. And unfortunately, after a strong start, Noah's story ends rather unflatteringly. Um, so as Sarah said, we see Noah getting drunk and lying around naked and then cursing his own children. So what we learn is that even after the drama of the flood, God still has a lot of work to do to save the world and to win human hearts back to himself. The floodwaters haven't washed away sin. Um, and so what I want to do in this chapter as we look at it today is to think about God and what he's doing next because he's already got his next plan in motion. And I think the best word to describe what we see God doing next in Genesis chapter 9 is parenting. Um, the, the Lord is parenting his people and he's behaving a bit like the parent of a rebellious toddler. God is a good dad who is loving and patient and firm and consistent. But we also see that he's working with a really tough case. Uh, he's working with a child who's stubborn and headstrong and selfish and unruly. So as we look at Genesis 8 and 9, I think what we see God doing is pulling out some of the best parental moves, some really good parent moves um, to win his people back to him. And I want to briefly draw attention to five of them. So here's what we see God doing. He sets standards. He makes concessions. He establishes safety. He preserves freedom and he wins through love. Okay, so let's five again. He sets standards, he makes concessions, he establishes safety, he preserves freedom, and he wins through love. So that's where we're going today. I want to briefly explore those five, five ideas with you. And um, we're going to be much more in the text this week than we were last week, so it's really going to help if you have a copy of Genesis uh, in front of you. We're looking at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. Well, the whole of chapter 9. So starting in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. So this is the end of the verse we read last week, chapter 8, verse 20. It says that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. So this is the first part of God's character that we see in this passage. And first, as a good father, God sets standards. So a good parent makes it clear what's expected of their children. And so it is with God. And what does God want from his people? He wants our worship, first and foremost. As I said last week, Noah took extra animals with him on board the ark, seven pairs of all the clean animals, for the sole purpose of sacrificing them after the flood. And God told him to do that. God wanted Noah to do that. And when Noah built the altar and offered those animals, it says that it smelled good to God. It was a pleasing aroma and it made God happy. So last week we talked about uh, Noah on board the ark for a year with all those animals and just how terribly it likely would have smelled inside. Um, so what a blessed relief it would be to get off the ark finally, back into the fresh air, and to get a lung full of good, clean air. 
And I think that was a picture to Noah of God's own experience because sin stinks to God and worship smells like fresh air. So the whole ark and getting off the ark experience was like a picture. Um, so at the time of Noah, what worship looked like was making animal sacrifices. That's what God asked for. And he doesn't want that anymore. Uh, but God still wants our worship. And now it looks like that God wants us. He wants our bodies, our own bodies, laid down as a living sacrifice, says Paul, and our hearts laid open before him. That's our spiritual act of worship. But the attitude to, to, between us and God is the same now as it was then, the same as Noah's. And the priority of worship is the same. We must love God, we must look to God, and put him at the center of our lives and put ourselves in orbit around him. That's what he asks of us, that is the standard. And everything else that we might do for him, all the good fruit and good works and holiness, it flows naturally out of that first relationship of worship. And all that other stuff just doesn't smell good unless it's coming out of worship. So worship comes first. Worship is the standard. Now, second, uh, God is a good father and he makes concessions to our weakness. Now, I really think that's what's going on in the first paragraph of chapter nine. So we notice that the flood is really like a creation do-over. Um, we have the repeated patterns of a watery chaos, the earth enveloped in watery chaos, and then God allowing life to come out of that chaos. And then when that life comes, God blesses it and says, be fruitful and multiply. All of those themes are repeated um, between the story of Adam and the story of Noah. But this time, something's different. There's a very important thing that's different, and it's the relationship between humans and animals. So God now, here in Genesis chapter 9, gives permission to people to eat the animals. That's in verse 3. And then he says also that the animals will now be afraid of people. That's in verse 2. So this is the point in history where God invents hunting. And I think we're supposed to understand from these verses that before this point in time, humans were all vegetarians, or at least we were supposed to be. But after this point, we became omnivores. But I think we should view this move of God as a kind of parental concession. It wasn't the original plan. It's not as good as the original plan, where humans and animals live together in harmony and don't eat each other. But God makes a concession that he can accept in order to curtail a behavior he won't stand for. All right, so God won't stand for violence. He won't stand for aggression against people who are made in his image. And we remember that violence was the main reason that God sent the flood in the first place. So now after the flood in this new world, God allows hunting. He allows killing and eating animals. And the idea seems to be that if he can slake man's thirst for blood that way, then maybe he'll stop spilling each other's. It's really interesting. It's, it seems to be a wise parental move, making a sort of compromise, an allowance in a less important area to preserve what really matters. And what we see really matters to God is first in verse 4 that people mustn't eat blood, uh, mustn't eat animals with the life still in them. And then in verse 6, that if either human or animal <clears throat> sheds human blood, their life will be forfeit. There will be <clears throat> a vengeance from God for that. 
So I think if we were going to apply this to the modern world, the principle for us today would be that if we find ourselves tempted toward any kind of violence toward people, any sort of hurting people, then we should go take up hunting instead. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, God allowed it for that very reason, as a safer outlet for your aggression. So go kill something, skin it and get your hands bloody, spend your aggression and then come back and be kind to people. All right, so like any good parent, God knows when to make concessions. Now third, God is a good father who knows the importance of establishing safety. So can we live in his world and really love God if we're always afraid of him? If we're always under the shadow of the fear of judgment? I think the answer is no. It's important that we feel safe in order that our love can be freely given. And that, I think, is the purpose of God's covenant with Noah and his covenant with all Noah's descendants and all living creatures that God establishes in verse 9. Now, this is a really important moment in the story because this is the first covenant in the Bible. The first covenant that's called by that word, the Hebrew word berit, which comes from the word bara, is to cut. And in the Old Testament, they would cut a covenant. And it means a solemn binding contract between two parties. And all throughout Old Testament times, covenants were very important in uh, the legal and professional world. And they're very important in God's relationship with man. And we remember that Jesus called his own, his own blood, which was spilled on the cross, the blood of the new covenant. So um, covenants are important. And here in Genesis 9, we see the very first one in the story, the first covenant. But this one's very unusual as covenants go because it's a one-sided contract. They usually have things for both parties to do. This one is unilateral. God just says, I'm going to do this. It doesn't have anything for people to keep. And I think that makes it very dependable, <laughs> maybe the most dependable covenant. Um, but God just says, I'm not going to flood the earth again, not ever. Once was enough, I've made my point, I've shown what I'm capable of. There will be one more judgment to come by fire at the end of time, but until that day, no more global calamities. God says that seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And I think that gives us a really important sense of security in the world under God. And the covenant is sealed with a powerful sign and covenants usually have a sign, which is like a physical way to remember them. And for this covenant with Noah, God attaches the sign of the rainbow. Actually, the ESV has it right. The Hebrew word in verse 13 is just bow. Some Bibles translate it rainbow because that's what we understand it to mean. But the word is just bow, and it means a military bow, like a bow that fires arrows. Um, and that was obviously the most powerful weapon in the world at the time. So God says, the sign is, I am hanging up my bow. I will no longer go to war against you. It's a ceasefire, a truce. So it would be a bit like if America, after the Second World War, had hung up the atomic bomb in the clouds and said, I won't ever use this again. That's the idea God's going for. Um, and God says that he looks at his bow in the clouds and remembers the covenant uh, that he made with Noah. And we know that that's still true today. We still see rainbows in the sky. And we know that every time that we see one, God is looking at that and remembering um, that he's made a covenant with Noah not to flood the earth again. So we remember um, that the ceasefire continues and that we are still safe under Noah's covenant. But we must realize that our safety comes from Noah's promise 
sorry, God's promise to Noah and his faithfulness to that covenant, and not from our own innocence. This season is a time of favor, a time of amnesty, when wickedness is not immediately brought to account and space is made for repentance and forgiveness. But woe to us if we mistake the reason for God's clemency and start to believe that he will never take vengeance on sin. All right, so that's the third thing that the covenant establishes, safety. And now fourth, God is a good father who preserves freedom. I think this is an important theme in this passage. Human freedom is incredibly important to God. Um, And despite the enormous damage that people can do with their power, God seems to never reach a point where his solution is to curtail freedom. So if we look toward the end of the story, Noah, starting in verse 20, just really makes a huge mess of things. Um, So he takes a clean, fresh, brand new world and immediately spoils it. Um, So first he goes and gets drunk, but that's not the worst part. Then he lies around naked, which is still not the worst part. Uh, The worst part has to be when Noah curses his own son for generations. So as Sarah said, what seems to have happened in in this account is that Noah's son Ham accidentally discovered his father lying naked in his tent. And of course, the decent thing for Ham to do would have been to quietly cover up his father and say no more about it. But instead, Ham goes outside and makes a big joke of it. Uh, He goes out to tell his brothers so that they can look too, appears to be the implication. And Shem and Japheth, they don't take the bait, but they walk in backwards to cover their father without seeing his nakedness. So no doubt, this is a crummy thing, right? This is something a kid shouldn't do to their parent. Ham did a really crummy thing. But surely Noah's response is a massive overreaction because what he says in response is, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And Canaan, we see from earlier in the passage, is the son of Ham. And Canaan, who wasn't even there at the time, is the poor recipient of Noah's curse. Um, And that curse seems to have been surprisingly powerful in the history that followed. Because as we read through um, Exodus and then Joshua, we we read that Canaan became the father of the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and a bunch of other tribes um, who practiced one of the most evil cults ever seen on earth. Um, They had a demonic religion full of cultic prostitution and child sacrifice. And in the end, they had to be driven from the land of Canaan by the children of Israel who were defended descended from Shem. So it really seems like Noah's curse carried a surprising amount of weight uh, and it brought a ton of misery to thousands of people generations later. And I think when we look at that, it's pretty terrifying to see just how much freedom God gives to people to speak carelessly, maybe with a bad hangover, uh, when we have no idea of the power that we wield. And I wonder if in Noah's special case, his words carried a special power because, like Adam, he was the patriarch of the whole world at this point, uh, father of the whole world. And we remember that Adam's disobedience certainly had very severe consequences for everyone else. And Noah's curse here brings pain and suffering to thousands of lives. So I think their, their words do carry more weight than ours. But I think it's still true to say for all of us, that we're freer than we might think, and our actions are more significant than we might think. The New Testament calls us to live not as unwise, but as wise, and to make the best use of the time, because the days are evil. 
And a good parent gives their child the gift of independence and the dignity of responsibility for the choices they make. And God has given us both. But we must shoulder that responsibility with wisdom because we are his agents to do lasting good or lasting harm in the world. Now, there's an example of this that comes right out of this very chapter. Uh, Genesis 9 verse 27 has a sorry history in the world that we know since. Um, because it has since been used historically as a biblical defense of African slavery. Basically, the Europeans have said that we're the children of Japheth and the African people are the children of Ham. And the Bible says, may God enlarge Japheth and let Canaan be his slave. And so that gives us biblical permission to make Africans our slaves. And I hate to even speak such a horrible sentiment aloud, but it's important for us to recognize that this has been a powerful and poisonous idea in the history of our world, and it hasn't yet completely gone away, so we need to talk about it. And guys, it's biblically garbage um, for two very important reasons. First, Noah does not speak well when he pronounces this curse. It comes from evil and not from good. And we can't justify our own evil actions on the basis that somebody in the Bible did the same evil. <laughs> That's just not the way the Bible works. But the second reason it's garbage is that Noah doesn't curse the African people. Ham had four sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, we learn in the next chapter. And Egypt obviously founded Egypt, and so was the father of a great African nation, the greatest nation in the world for a few thousand years. Cush moved further south than his brother and became the father of the Ethiopian tribes. And Put moved west into what is now Libya. And we do understand that the children of these three brothers eventually populated the whole continent of Africa. But they're not included in Noah's curse, are they? Read the Bible. For whatever reason, Noah singled out Canaan for his curse and not the other three. And the history of what came of that is told in the book of Joshua. So I wanted to set the biblical record straight on that against what my European ancestors have so foolishly and damagingly said. But to show again how people have the power to do lasting harm or lasting good. So I want to finish on a more positive note by talking about love. Um, like the very best parents, God wins in the end through love. Um, and so we're going to see a really important verse in Genesis 9 that really points ahead to a much brighter future. Because in the midst of his embarrassing rant, Noah actually says a very powerful and prophetic thing. In verse 27, Noah says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And you can read that over and over in English or in Hebrew. And there's a bit of a lack of clarity grammatically as to who the him is. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Is that him, God, or is it Japheth? But my uh, Hebrew professor, Erica Moore, spent a good while in class making the strong case that the him in that verse means God. So it means let God dwell in the tents of Shem. And if that's the case, then that makes it a very powerful prophecy of what was going to happen later in the tabernacle in the wilderness when God did indeed come to dwell physically in the tents of Shem in his bright and overwhelming glory. And that would also make Noah's statement a long distance prophecy of the incarnation of Jesus himself. Because that was the fulfillment of the tabernacle. John says in chapter 1 of his gospel that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
So now God has come to live with us, not just in the tents of Shem, but in the movable tent of a human body that could reach the whole world. And this, friends, is the solution to the great problem, the problem that the flood couldn't solve. Washing the whole world clean with water did not get rid of sin. And God knew that he could judge again and again and again, and it never would. We need to know that God will deal decisively with sin. But however much we live in the fear of that, it actually doesn't win over our hearts. It really doesn't change us deep inside. It doesn't turn us back to God. And for that, we need love. We need love. We need to see God's love. That's what changes us on the inside. The love of God that was made visible in the face of Jesus, made manifest in the body of Jesus. The love that tore that body open and spilled his blood for our sake. That's what wins our hearts in a way that judgment never can. And God, as a good father, knows that. Jesus shows us the love that we were made for, made to receive and made to give. So if that's true, that God's love has won us and not his anger, then it stands to reason that our love will win the world and not our anger. So I want to just close by thinking about that. We all have like plenty of reasons to be angry right now. We're angry at our bosses for making us come into work or angry at them for not letting us come in. We're angry at our neighbors for being too reckless or too cautious in their socializing. We're angry at our government for decisions that hurt us personally. And we're angry at economic inequality and racial injustice and many other reasons. And we're not necessarily wrong to be angry, but we need to see in scripture how deeply unproductive our anger is. The word of scripture is that it never helps. So James says the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. And the world doesn't need our anger. I'm really preaching to myself here. It needs our love. So if you're struggling with anger right now, I prescribe a week of quiet times reading and rereading Psalm 37. It's been tremendously helpful to me. Do not fret because of evil men and do not give in to anger. It leads only to evil. And Psalm 37 could have been written for 2020. So I highly recommend some study in that. So today, we turn away from anger because we remember that we have a good father, a good and loving father. And today, we caught him in the act of parenting. We saw him setting standards, making concessions, establishing safety, preserving freedom, and winning our hearts through love. So today, in our breakout groups, I want to talk about God as a father. And we can think about two questions. Um, when do you first remember experiencing God as your father? Let's remember that to each other. When do you first remember experiencing God as your good father? And then secondly, what kind of fathering do you need from him right now? So let's go to our groups.